And as always, I'm here with Lauren. Say hello, Lauren. Hello, my beautiful people, my friends, my frenemies, my ghouls, my gals. Wait, it is Christmas season and uh, my Christmas tidings. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas holidays, whatever you celebrate, my people. Yeah. Happy Krampus Eve, you know, all that stuff. Happy human holidays <laughs> for all the humans out there. Unless you're a robot, in which case, thank you for listening to us. We hope that we incorporate well into your algorithm. Yeah. So this year, I mean, in previous years, our December December episode is almost always like focused on end of the year stuff, like what we thought were the best games of the year. And because we know that you all love that so much, we're not going to do that. (laughs) We have decided to continue on our theme that we've been running with since back in September, which is sort of the component parts of making a game. Um, As we've mentioned before, I am currently working on a visual novel whose title I will probably end up changing to Sympathetic Memories, but is currently called Le Conqueur des Filles, or like the, the Contest of Girls. And all of the sort of like constituent parts of how game, how, how make game. <laughs> and so today um, we wanted to focus on sort of like how to develop themes, like where themes come from, where how ideas happen, how, how inspiration works, generally speaking, and then how that influence ver- influences various aspects of design. Yeah. And I think something what's that really gets glossed over in AAA development slash um, you kind of see us talk about are kind of like game pillars. Like what are the pillars of your game? And I know that God of War Ragnarok actually had some very strong pillars, which one of them was dad. Uh, No, one of them was (laughs) father-son. Yeah. uh, And that was actually a whole pillar, right? But as well as I think it was melee combat and like fantasy or it was some sort of other kind of grounding pillar right yeah and so if you've been in game design before i think what's interesting is that when we're talking about game theming here we're really kind of talking about like kind of the narrative and kind of storytelling aspect of the gameplay because a lot of people don't realize that really strong narrative themes honestly come right from the game itself or the gameplay that you want to evoke and i only bring up god of war because a lot of people have called it dad of war but that was because a pillar was strongly influenced with father and son not only did the story have to re-emphasize that they were a father and son dynamic but also the gameplay said like immediately in that pillar so that atreus needs to be combat hardened like he needs to not be someone as an ai who's like the person you have to protect because now it feels like dumb ai it doesn't feel like a son that you're grooming to become a god or whatever well yeah because it's more yeah sorry go ahead 
No, I was just going to say, and so that's that parallel, right? Like that's kind of the depth of our topic today and why it matters. Because if you already listened to us and you love the indie game dev and you love hearing the philosophy, I think it's really important to say like, look at this really awesome shipped title out there that everyone loves and it won game narrative of the year. And like, it's amazing because it is. Yeah. But also here's our real world parallel. If you care about these things and you want to learn how to choose a good theme for your game, um, that's an, you know, the exemplar, right. Of game theming. Well, yeah. And if you look at, so, you know, the game awards happened as of this recording last Thursday, And if you look at the games that have won game of the year over the past, say, like five, probably 10 years, they all have very clear, focused narrative themes. And so if you look at what won this year, which is Baldur's Gate 3, like that is probably as narrative rich a game as you're going to get. (laughs) Like it's kind of astounding. But then even if you look at the previous year, if you look at Elden Ring, which is in many ways sort of like an offshoot of the Souls games, because it is still from software, but Elden Ring had George R. R. Martin basically come up with the world, the themes, like everything that was going on within the universe of that game. And then the previous year, you had Hades, which was also an incredibly story-rich game. So this isn't just a kind of, you know, indie, artsy-fartsy thing. This is now where triple a games are like you kind of can't make a blockbuster triple a game anymore unless you have these these like really strong narrative ideas in them i guess <laughs> so um i am as you know as dark i'm not gonna oppose it as the narrative systems person <laughs> and narrative person on this channel you are the last person to say you do not need strong narrative themes in yeah. fact you need them so much that could be ludo narrative if you will um, all right, but that is not the topic of today's episode. No. The topic of this is themes. And I think last week we were talking about, or last episode, we were talking about kind of the usefulness and drawbacks of defiance. But I think what we really wanted to emphasize first is how does, obviously, right, um, God of War is an example of theming. Immediately, you know, Kratos has a son, right? Like they yeah, are exactly, introduced yeah. together. So I'm curious in Le Concur de Fie or in Sympathetic Memories, um, where exactly did you get the ideas for that theming or how did you know right that you wanted that as your theme or what were you kind of going about at the time so the thing is like i've talked before about the defiance mechanic and how it works with regards to encounter design in the game but that's not how it started out the mechanic actually evolved from thematically what defiance is supposed to mean in the context of the game so for a little background on this to sort of like see where it came from in my own brain. In recent years, I've been really sort of fascinated by failed revolutionaries. And specifically the kind of failed revolutionary who is very like independent and is in many ways sort of like feels a need to be a kind of like heroic figure that who radically transforms society while not really realizing that like historical transformations of social conditions are really far more of a communal and collaborative effort than they are a heroic one. And yet I still kind of am really fascinated by figures that want to be that heroic persona, either in terms of like sacrifice or like really sort of interesting like things that they accomplish. And so much so that the previous game that I made, which is a tabletop card-based game called Snow, um, the the central character in that game is one of these failed revolutionaries. In fact, in context of it, 
the game begins shortly after the character that you sort of personify gets out of jail after I don't want to spoil why because it's revealed through the course of the game. So if you want to understand why they were in jail, uh, it's it's in there. Uh, but I will say that it's because they were one of these types who wanted to be the sort of like heroic re- uh, revolutionary figure, but failed. And it's really sort of like, to me, the most interesting thing is how does this type of person go on living and go on sort of like continue with their life after that failure has played out and all of its consequences. It's like, what do you do at that point? And so snow is about that. And then also this game is about that because at the very beginning of the game, the, the the character that who you embody, Ohatsu, she is going to die shortly. Um, And in fact, that is the only ending of the game. The ending of the game is you die. And it's not just, and it's not different ways of dying. It's the same death. It's always the same. Ending. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you brought up snow. I hope I'm not cutting you off, but I think in a lot of people, we, we actually haven't mentioned snow until then. This was Nicholas's first work, which was actually a really interesting board game that we got to play in person where he kind of watched us to kind of play test. And on kind of subsequent playthroughs, what I noticed is that both of your works have this weird, uh, Oh my goodness, I am now live and not able to think of the really <laughs> weird. It's a very, uh, this is not the correct word. So just everyone's clear, but it's a very interesting, like delicate way of approaching the past that it's simultaneously yeah. not so much reflective as it is like informative. What's, does, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. like a self-directed sort of past. And Snow had a lot of the theming as well about you are kind of uncovering these memories of a self-directed past. And I say self-directed because you, the player, are the self. You're playing the self. And you are guiding yourself through different types of memories. And so it's funny, actually, that you brought up Snow as kind of this natural progression for Le Concours de Fille because that is kind of also, right, really self-directed memories. And so I'm curious, like, when you looked at the theming and you looked at that, like, story idea i'm just wondering if that's something that came from that kind of you wanted to reflect on the past yeah i mean to me uh, another really important theme in basically everything that i work on not just games but also in things that i've written and also in a lot of my academic work is sort of the way in which memory gets played out and in fact the last published article i ever wrote was on a comic by Shirato Sanpei called Kiyuk Shoujo. And that comic is explicitly about the, the ways in which certain like catastrophic historical events get buried in the present. And how like the comic is in many ways an attempt to sort of excavate that like historical trauma and bring it back into the forefront in a society that really just wants to get past it. Man, you would have been really, really good in my movie club about your name. <laughs> yeah. And so that those are the kinds of things that fascinate me. Yeah. And so, but, but this time around, this main character is different from the one in Snow precisely because of that defiance, precisely because they haven't gotten past it. They are themselves a failed revolutionary and they haven't gotten over it. And there are these other voices that are sort of like playing, not playing, but they're in your mind because that's the whole concept of a sympathetic memory. It's this memory that is sort of like shared with another individual so that they can understand it as well, psychically. 
Um, but the defiance is really important as a theme because in many ways, Ohatsu is still that person who wants to transform everything, but has to come to the realization that she can't. She just can't. Um, and so like there is this tension between having to accept the way things are and still wanting to oppose them. And so that is how it worked its way into the encounter design. So then the encounter design with a sort of like bifurcated, like you can make choices as to what actions you take in a moment, or you can use the sort of the defiance that you build up over time to completely obviate the encounter. Like that's how that's function. It, it's not just like, hey, here are some points that you can spend to not have to deal with this conflict. It means more than that. In spending those points and in obviating that encounter, what you're doing is you're enacting that same kind of like resistance, that that feeling of resistance that she has to the way things have played out in her life. While at the same time, if you don't want to get to that, like I said, the one ending too fast, if you want to sort of like reveal more about what she experienced throughout her life, you actually have to very finely balance. And that's sort of like, as you were saying, that's sort of like delicacy. It is. It's you very to, delicate. Yeah. You have to finely balance what you would need to do to keep the story going versus like expressing that sense of like, this is fucked up. And I do actually want players to get a sense that she has been wronged. Like there is something that is fundamentally wrong that happened to her and she is actually right to feel that way but at the same time she lives in a society and that doesn't necessarily work like you can't just be defiant right. all the time sadly anarchists um okay <laughs> sorry i was like sadly uh anarchy came up this past week for me actually in a, in a positive way nice. and so i was very excited uh and um there's a bookstore i now need to take you to as well uh <laughs> anyway all right everybody personal lives of lauren and nicholas uh that halfway indeed. in no that indeed no actually so it's interesting you talked about that delicate balance as well and the encounter design because this is a question that i wanted to ask you last time that i didn't get a chance to ask you and for me, I was really curious, how did you, I'm reading the new script and that actually makes it more apparent the places of choice where you have to spend your defiance. Yeah. And I was curious if you wanted to kind of talk about that in relationship to your game themes, because I feel like you've added more in here than you originally had in your first script. And when I say more, because you guys uh, who are listening to us have no idea what I'm pointing at. Um, I feel like you added either more defiance checks ins or you increased the amount of defiance. And I could just be reading this wrong because you are yeah. editing the same file, right? Yeah. But yeah. you were actually increasing some areas where you actually get plus defiance as you're silent, right? Yeah. And then there are, but your defiance costs now are becoming higher. And so, for example, or, or, there are, or lower. Or lower. Instances. Okay. Yeah. In some instances. Um, in this current version, I am not seeing, maybe I, I'm just not scrolling. So I think enough, I know yeah. the, I actually think I know the encounter that you're looking at without having to open it. And that one actually has lower defiance costs. Okay. Because the purpose of it is to actually encourage you to use it. And so like normally. Is that a it, variable that's in, it's been a while since I played. Is that something I actually see at the end user or. Um, no, it's something that you're actually going to have to kind of interpret from the okay. way in which it's structured. So typically the way defiance works in an encounter is that it doesn't actually come up as an option 
until you're at a point where you're like about halfway through or at a point where you could right. potentially be on the verge of failing like the okay. entire encounter. Right. And, and in that instance, it actually costs more defiance to use it. But the reason why that one in particular is structured the way that it is, is because it's actually turning away from another aspect of the encounter designs where like, generally speaking of your sort of like three active options, one of them will get a bonus to the, the ability check role based upon how well you interpret what is like most appropriate for the context. That is typical of the encounters. But in the one you're talking about, that isn't there. Okay. Because the that's one why. that's supposed to be the bonus one is the defiance. And that's why it's available from the beginning. And so it's not just that you're whether or not you're reading the context in which you're taking actions, but also are you reading and interpreting the way in which the encounter is being presented to you? See, this is what it's, it's those layers and that delicacy, right? That like, I think when you look at your, it's it's not so much that, that there's a theme of like defiance, but you kind of talk about that theme of memory and that reflective memory or self-directed memory, right? You're talking about yeah. how Hatsu can't do anything about what she wants, and there's well, that yeah, kind because, of acceptance, right? Well, she's on her, yeah. yeah, she's on her. Because in the context of the game, it's all already happened. Yeah, like, well, because that's why it's a memory, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's really interesting because I was always curious about when I'm reading these scripts, I'm like, huh, like these are the plus and the pluses. And I think what's interesting, just so everyone's clear, is that by being silent, you're actually kind of earning the ability to be more defiant. Yeah. And which as a AAA developer where you're input in political situations, it's like staying silent also does earn you some like pluses, you know, so that when you do speak up later, that that makes more sense yeah. versus the person that's always calling out problems, which is a little sad, right? It's like, yeah. no, these are real problems. Um, but I think that what's interesting is that then when you actually use defiance, it strikes that delicate balance that if you use it too often, right, once again, you're just kind of shut up. They're like, yeah. okay, you just don't want to do anything. And then the game ends because you are actually physically shut up. Yeah, you are literally like euthanized. So Yeah. So that answered my question about that. Um, so just continue, I guess, with your train of thought. I, I okay. guess what I'm saying is like, I, I'm going to think on that. And So along those same lines, like my my obsession with like failed revolutionary figures is also a bit personal as well. So to go back to Snow for a bit, when I was making that game, I guess it would have been like the end of last year, roughly. Um, as Lauren knows, and maybe I've talked about this before, I don't remember if I have, but that was probably one of the lowest points of my life. Like, full stop. And one of the things I was dealing with at the time was an incredible sense of betrayal uh, from people who I had thought were like my close comrades. And so emotionally, even though the character is not really like me and anything that like they remember, like that's never happened to me. But at the same time, the kind of like affective, which is to say sort of like the, the, the sort of the collective emotional experience is very very close to what i was experiencing at that time and in many ways <laughs> i sort of used the game like making the game as a form of therapy that's less true of of this game but it does like that's one of the things i'm really obsessed with is sort of like 
creating subjective experiences. Oh, actually, I mean, there's another place that this comes from is that like, I'm sort of obsessed with the the variety of first person games that exist. So not just shooters, but like anything that's framed as a first person game. And so this game is first person as well. And the reason why is because a lot of those games, particularly, you know, especially in the survival horror genre, there is this really careful attention paid to like the subjective experience of the player and how that maps onto their avatar. Like, I mean, so to give you an example of what I mean by this, like uh, the frictional games, especially, so like the Amnesia series, but then also probably one of my favorite games of all time, which actually Lauren turned me on to, which is Soma. Like that game is brilliant in this specific regard. Like the way in which it understands how to construct a particular subjective experience, both through sort of like the, uh, the visual perspective as well as sort of like the themes that sort of play themselves out in the narrative, um, just absolutely incredible. So like, that's the kind of thing that I want to do with my games. I want to be able to, so, you know, so if, if our first pillar is defiance, I would say that the second pillar of this game is sort of like focusing on the subjectivity of a player's experience rather than on sort of just like creating a fun gameplay loop and seeing how it plays out. Like the gameplay loop stems from that desire to create the subjective condition. It's not the other way around. Right. And I, yeah. yeah, keep going. And so like, for me, that's always how like the mechanics I design or the mechanics I keep or the ones that I decide to discard, like, if for me, if I like design a mechanic and then I try it out, you know, I write some lines of code and if it doesn't feel like it's contributing to that sense of sort of like the emotional state that Ohatsu is in, you know, when she's sort of re-experiencing a particular memory, then I just cut it. Like I'm pretty ruthless in that regard. And I really spend a lot of time trying to make sure that like the mechanics are communicating this like one kind of experience. And I mean, I'm not trying to valorize that over other gameplay experiences, but that's the kind of game that I want to make. That's the kind of game I find interesting. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is we talk about pillars, right? And you said your second one was this like kind of emotional subjectivity of the player. I'm actually curious, like a big way that, you know, we in kind of AAA gaming think about how to convey emotion through players is usually not through like text or dialogue, but it's kind of more through the mood and tone of the environment or the visual aesthetic. Yeah. And so I know that's something that like was really important to you for starting this project is I'm curious, how did that, did that work into your themes at all? Or do you feel like the visual art or aesthetic comes from that emotional subjectivity or do you feel like that's kind of different like maybe that's a different pillar no they are related so okay so if you're if we're talking about the the visual aesthetic and how it relates really so the uh the sprites that i use in the game are more suggestive than they are like explicit character designs what do i mean by this so i primarily use silhouettes throughout the game silhouettes are very important visual like cue um and they come in many forms both the silhouettes of <clears throat> excuse me the sprites themselves but then also there's um a cameo that keeps coming up throughout the story like what that signifies about particular characters a cameo is a form of silhouette 
and I mean cameos in terms of like a brooch, not you know cameo in the sort of like way in which it's used nowadays. It's like somebody showing up in a film. No, exactly. That's why yeah. I was like, please define that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the then sort of like the visual design and the way in which things can are at times kind of foggy. Uh, the way in which the sort of like the uh the, the sort of the background sprite over which like the text displays and sort of like the the little uh figure over which like characters names are displayed they're all kind of cloud-like or like torn or detached they're not like clearly defined in the same way that you know memories are not always clearly defined or memories aren't necessarily always a good reflection of what actually happened because I mean, if any of you have ever studied like the the psychology of cognition and memory, you'll know that memories tend to get like reinterpreted in your mind and sort of like restored as you age. And so like the way you remember something is as much a function of like the purpose it needs to serve for you in this moment as it is like just a recollection of what happened. And so the the visual aesthetic with these um these sort of silhouettes as sprites, the way in which the text is displayed, and also kind of the, uh, so it's mostly classical music that I use in the game, but the ones that I specifically chose, so I um, like one of the Goldberg variations is used, I think it's 25. Um, I've also used a, um, a Chopin etude that have a kind of like ethereal quality to them. And so the mood that it's trying to evoke, and also like, because you never see characters like explicitly you do, you will see them described in the text, but the whole point of the the whole point of having them described rather than just shown to you is because you, I want, I mean, maybe this doesn't work. Hopefully I, people will understand why this is, but it's to sort of engage your imagination as to what these characters look like, what this world feels like. And so like, it's meant to be suggestive rather than determinative. So in regards to like the visual aesthetic of the game. Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting because when you're working on like a visual novel versus the AAA space, like you can't really do suggestive in hyper-realistic graphics, right? Like a Call of Duty game saying, I suggest to you this is an enemy is not really going to fly uh, when your game, right, is about I, shooting. I disagree, but I understand what you're saying. You can disagree. We can still yeah. disagree on this podcast. No, we can't. We have to agree on everything. We have to run it by <laughs> each other. We have to form a consensus. Well, no, no, I think in the same kind of explicit way is what I'm getting at, right? Is I think that like, I'm curious, like if the subjectivity, so subjectivity aside, right? The suggestiveness yeah. of your medium, of you suggest who the characters are, right? Yeah. What I'm saying is that in a visual medium, like hyper, more hyper-realistic graphics, if you you can do it in different ways that are more akin to say a film, like you've hired an actor and you don't really blur out their face every time. Right. Well, no, it's, it's more, no, actually there is this kind of suggestiveness. That's kind of a hard word for me to say in games. It's just, it may not always necessarily be apparent to people. So like think of a halo game, like an ordinary first person shooter, like halo, you can be in one room and then you can hear something happening in an adjacent room or you you get haptic feedback 
or like you start seeing like, you know, things falling from the ceiling, that is a suggestive aspect. You don't see the, th you know, the, the boss creature that you're about to fight. Initially, you have all these suggestive aspects that sort of like indicate to you how scary and like terrifying it's going to be even before you see it. And that is the way a lot of survival horror games work as well. If you think right. of like, like Pyramid Head in the um, Silent Hill games, a lot of the experience of Pyramid Head isn't necessarily seeing him like completely. You often see him like like half of his body or you like sort of see him in a distance. And sort of the fact that like it's this, it has a suggestive quality. And then like the terror of the character is in many ways part and parcel of how distant you feel from it and like the need to stay away and sort of if you if you were just on right right on top of you from the get-go swinging that you know giant like big ass sword that he has um i don't think it would actually be as scary i think it would just feel okay. like a re I regular think, boss no and i i'm not disagreeing with that aspect i think what i was saying or what i was trying to articulate is that it's, it feels like your example in the visual novel, like you're saying, is that what you did with the clouds and the kind of suggestive who these characters may be really isn't explicitly always called out in dialogue, right? Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Right. And so I guess like hearing you are saying, well, this is how you can suggest, say, horror, right? As a very blatant example in AAA, I do, I do say, yes, that is very suggestive of what could or could not happen. But he's still a boss, right? So at the end of the day, yeah, yeah. Like you you know yeah. that it is happening. And it all feels more of like smoke mirrors illusion for to elicit that feeling. So I guess like let's take AAA outs outside of it. I think my real question was kind of more on the kind of emotional subjectivity. Yeah. I was kind of trying to lead towards the writing aspect is as you write these scripts and as you are looking at the visuals and the vibe, like are you kind of trying to match that visual, right, cloudiness? within your dialogue or are you actually doing the opposite? Like you want your dialogue to be more explicit and say, this is what's happening because the visuals are more subject. Wow. I can't say that word anymore. Either, <laughs> Nicholas. Suggestive. No, I, I, I see the point you're making. And actually you are right to, to point out that like there is specificity in the game. It's just focused on something else. So like, in the various encounters, like I do go out of my way to describe the action in very explicit detail. I don't necessarily do a lot of sort of like description. I mean, I do some description of how characters look, um, but I'm very explicit with regards to how they feel, how they behave, and the things that they do. I guess behave and things that they do is the same thing. Precisely because... Okay, so another pillar of the game is interpretation, is analysis. The game is not... So the point in sort of like giving you very explicit description is precisely so as to avoid telling you outright what it means. In other words, it's like all of the... So I'm, I'm handing the player all of the information, but it is up to them to figure out what it means and how to respond to it. And so then that, and that filters into the encounter design and the mechanics where like if you interpret a situation and sort of respond more appropriately, you will get a bonus. You'll get a bonus to your, your ability check role. And so there's, a clear, there's an explicit payoff for being very attuned to what is going on specifically in a given moment. 
And so I will often describe emotions very specifically. I'll describe actions very explicitly. But beyond that, yeah, the rest is kind of hazy. And so the haziness serves two purposes. One, it is much more evocative of this notion of like working through memories. But at the same time, keeping all of that other contextual stuff sort of vague helps highlight the things that are being treated explicitly. In other words, what I'm explicit about doesn't then get lost in sort of like the melange of everything that you see. And, you know, that's the thing that you sometimes, I sometimes decry a bit in games that are more hyper-realistic because the subtle can get drowned out very right. easily. And I, I don't think... want that to happen. Yeah. I'm really excited by like the different types of like push and pull and for me, like, it's really interesting to kind of tease out the pillars from like the very strong theming that you had. And it kind of comes through in all of your work and all of your like dialogue. And so for me, like, what's interesting is that when we looked at the pillar of kind of emotional subjectivity, I feel like it also kind of all comes down to that memory structure. Like you keep saying the word memories and about how like sifting yeah. through old memories is pretty hazy. And so I'm wondering, like, in order to choose, I don't want to say like you chose this game theme because of all your research, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it sounds like once you kind of found your pillars and you found your game theming, I mean, there's a lot of research that just happened to go into it because, yeah. right, of your kind of like academic background. So like, is did anything, what are some of like examples of the mechanics that you threw out that didn't really fit with that theme, but that were actually fun to play? <laughs> so, uh in the so with reference to something that's in the demo uh so the the very first um sympathetic memory you experience is with uh ohatsu's governess josephine and josephine sort of takes her to takes you as ohatsu to a memory of this school that you are about to go to and that she herself attended and this is this school that is specifically set up for training slash disciplining more disciplining really these like psychic girls who randomly started appearing in this treaty port and treaty port colony that exists in a kind of stand-in for japan and it has a stand-in for like the united states a stand-in for britain etc and so you have these like asian looking girls who are suddenly born to these white families and and they're psychic <laughs> in, in my world. Um, but the the psychic thing is actually more to sort of like have a, a fairly obvious way to indicate like a power and a sort of a, a capability that these girls and young women possess while at the same time being a kind of threat to broader society that needs to be suppressed. And this school exists specifically to suppress it. And so initially that was not going to be like the beginning of the game the beginning of the game was actually going to be ohatsu's arrival at the school and she was going to be i guess attacked in the same way that josephine in her prior incarnation was attacked at this the school that she went to but so, you know, with that in mind, I, I, I kind of almost wanted it to be like, so the encounter design is originally thought was basically going to be like something that I love, which is turn-based RPGs. So it was essentially going to be like, 
you know, do 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 do, and and it was yeah, gonna, exactly, and it, and it was gonna have that feel to it. Whereas, and it's gonna, and it was gonna be kind of like uh, Undertale and Deltarune in in that like the turn based quote unquote combat was going to involve things that were not traditionally thought of as like combat abilities, like actions that you take would then not necessarily be like. You know, yeah, hit. so it was going to be Undertale, but instead of like, but kind of all Mercy Run ish. Exactly. Right? Where it's yeah. Like sit, 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 like get yourself attacked. Yeah, because that's one of the things I really like about Undertale and also what I like about Deltarune. Um, but I realized that, like, so the reason why I scrapped it, even though, even though strangely enough, that actually made the, the encounter math much simpler. Because you could just, you know, you can go into Python, you create a fairly simple while loop, you know, you have hit points and like, it's mostly very straightforward numbers and it can be recursive in a way that's fairly easy to design. And what I ended up designing is actually far more complicated <laughs> because what I realized is that it was kind of goofy. It was, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a goofy way to present this idea of like how these girls interact with each other and sort of use their psychic abilities on one another. So and actually, so, so instead, I, I so I went back and in redesigning how the encounters work, that also then led me to sort of fundamentally redesign how Ohatsu slash Josephine like experience this particular kind of encounter. What's interesting there, though, is like, let's really break that apart, I think, to kind of like emphasize the importance of game theming here, because obviously yeah. Defiance was like this high level theme, but you really talked about like the encounter design and especially in a visual novel, whether it has an RPG system or not, like just a, let's just call it a 2D action adventure yeah. for simplicity's sake for the love yeah. of the Lord, but you're designing <laughs> this 2D action adventure. If we actually go through it, you're talking about how initially you wanted to kind of get that attack and to get that combat front and center, right? So let's just say in your theming. And I'm curious, like, why did you want that at the beginning? Before we kind of, that's my first question, right? Is why did you feel like Otatsu attending the school and being attacked immediately the same Josephine was? Like, how was that originally oh, yeah. like, what, going so, so, to yeah. hit that theme for you? So the the idea so to me it was it was to serve two functions it was to be sort of tutorial in the way that like the josephine memory is tutorial <clears throat> but it was also sort of like to be a kind of a shock it's like oh hey it's a bunch of girls and it's going to look like sort of like you know i don't know a romantic like shoujo manga you know which you have these girls and you know in the early 20th century and they're all in their uniforms and there's like long size like no i wanted it sort of like a character who looks like you know characters who look like we're going to point in that direction but what in fact you see is something extraordinarily brutal and so that's why i wanted it to be more combat centric and why that's how i wanted it to start because i i do believe in sort of being very upfront with your player about what kind of game they're getting themselves into but also the more i thought about it that was not the kind of game that i was making 
And if yeah, it was much more I, focused on the feelings and the subjective experience of it, it really needed a, more, a fundamentally different framing. And that's why I had it as this sympathetic memory, because it's both introducing you to the idea that they have these psychic powers, while at the same time also showing you that the combat encounter actually isn't like an ordinary combat encounter from a turn-based RPG. Yeah. It is much more subjectively focused rather than on like the attacks and things that you do. Right. And I think what's interesting there is like, I'm not saying right because I'm like, yes, that's you are correct. It was more just like, <laughs> yeah, so you've really answered my question because I think that when on the flip side, your theming was like, this is a brutal game because it was brutal feelings. Yes, But exactly. I think what's interesting is that now actually you could see where your two kind of opposing pillars could actually fight against each other. Yeah. And one of those is that, yes, this is brutal, but if I make it overtly brutal, I'm now no longer leaving it up to the player's own subjective experience, right? Yeah, and also, if I was going to emphasize, like, perspective, because, you know, in sort of, like, creating that subjective con condition, perspective is extremely important. But if I sort of, like, leave it at that with these sort of, like, you know, turn-based, like, you know combat encounters i'm not really giving a lot of different perspectives on what's happening because the thing is like so you get josephine's memory of like her experience at this place but then when ohatsu goes there in you know from uh act two onward it's going to be act two and act three um her experience doesn't really match with Josephine's because Josephine is essentially trying to warn, warn her. She's trying to say like, Oh my God, you're not prepared for this. Like, this is what it's going to be like. And I'm so sorry that I didn't like prepare you for this. And so then Ohatsu goes into it with this expectation that that's what it's going to be like. And then kind of turns out not exactly to be like that. And so that's where sort of like you get a shift in mood because like all all Josephine presents to her is this idea that it's a terrible, brutal, abusive environment. And that will partially be true for Ohatsu as well. But the thing that she will also experience is a sense of camaraderie and friendship and even kind of like a quasi romantic relationship with one of the other girls at the school. And that that romantic relationship will then turn into a very complicated thing for her when I she sort of when she eventually decides like what she's going to do about a condition that these girls have been subjected to that she will want to resist. And that's where the sort of the revolutionary thing comes in. I think about the revolutionary idea and the matter of perspective and subjectivity, I think that one of like the interesting things to kind of break into is another kind of aspect you've called out here, which is character's perspective and the character's subjective experience alongside yeah. the players. I'm wondering, I know this is a chicken and the egg situation <laughs> for our listeners out there. I'm curious what came first. Did you wanting the player's subjectivity to like to put themselves in the game and have that open to interpretation lead you to create characters who had different subjective experiences or did you just have right characters that had the subjectivity that then naturally right kind of led to the players maybe needing to interpret them so i have to go back a little bit because back in time at least so the game or at least the story of the game 
uh, comes out of a set of like short story. So there's this thing that I do where I like just kind of work on stories or various forms of writing or translating things kind of as practice, I guess, you know, it's like, you know, the same reason you would go to a gym. It's to sort of like keep yourself in shape. Um, but in this sense, it's sort of like to keep my writing chops in shape. Um, and I had recently come back to one of these uh, sets of stories. And in many ways, the game is an attempt to correct something that I felt wasn't really working in the story. And it was precise. So in this, in the story, everything is told, first of all, from a, from a third person perspective. And it's really kind of overly focused on the ways in which like the character sort of the girls who are at this school are kind of like constantly in a state of turmoil where like they're constantly accidentally because they don't really have full control over their abilities and because you know they're adolescents they don't even necessarily have complete like understanding of their emotions like they keep ending up doing things that hurt others even when they don't intend to and to me, as I was sort of reading back through it, like it wasn't really sufficiently capturing how soul crushing that is for these characters. So that first of all led me to this idea like, okay, then it's gotta be a first person game because I have to get like the feeling of what it means to do that as close to the player as possible. Uh, additionally, the other thing that I think wasn't quite coming across in the stories was the sense that like this constant feeling of like misunderstanding and misjudging things. And so the reason why sort of the multiple perspectives and sort of this way in which like you get a kind of setup, but then the setup doesn't play out the way the setup sort of intended you to understand things is precisely to give the player that visceral experience of misunderstanding. And so that's what I mean by the game is in, is in many ways an attempt to correct what I thought wasn't working in those stories, even though I took a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the events just are just lifted from those stories. But the way in which they are presented is fundamentally different. I think this is a really great place to kind of recap and end the podcast, Nicholas, because I think that's something that I, I knew you were loosely inspired, but to also hear that you actually kind of recreated those <laughs> events and presented them differently. So yeah. It's like a great topic for our next time to kind of talk about the story inspiration and doing more of that visual presentation. Yeah. And also like um, the historical grounding, which I didn't really talk at all about. We have plenty of time. I think <laughs> what's really great about like kind of like historical, I don't want to say historical works, but historical works, right? It is historical. Being, yeah. It's historically yeah. grounded. It is it's historically grounded, right? And also, right, the story inspiration and like kind of the recapturing or the revisualization, right, of these areas is going to be really, really exciting. And it was probably, I was like, oh, I wonder if we'll get to that. We definitely didn't. So I'm going to take notes for that for next time. Um, to kind of recap this for our listeners out there and to like make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page is that while we're looking at kind of game theming, kind of game themes do can feel like a scary place. Like this is a big one word, like hope is your theme or something, which is not correct. But um, but defiance, right, is a really strong theme, right? Yeah. You can kind of go through all of your um, from other games out there and kind of go, okay, well, if it's defiance, yeah, there's hope, but also it could just be, right, like, 
assassination. Like that's an obvious theme of Assassin's yeah. Creed, right? Yeah. And, but I think what's interesting is that we realize that from this kind of talk, pillars and themes can work against each other. Yeah. And what's interesting is that usually I think it boils down to, well, one uh, one theme is going to win out all over the tops. And here is actually not true. Nicholas Lucians was talking about how we needed to pull back on both themes to create something that made those themes work together. Yeah. And that's going to be the stronger experience. And second, I wanted to kind of point out something that we've talked about throughout this episode, but we didn't explicitly state, which is that the first person experience is inherently more subjective to your reader or player yeah i think something i think something we should add to the list is that i haven't fully explained like how the first person perspective works because it is a little bit more complicated than just like what you would see in a shooter right and i think that what's interesting here guys is that we get to now kind of up the fact that we still have been working on this book for way too long um but lauren had decided to get more responsibility at home and at work <laughs> uh, for these last few months. And that's fine. Um, you can check me out on the blue sky. Uh, what I will say is that for me, I I definitely am excited to keep doing this to you guys. And obviously, please, we have our Patreon. You can like ask us any questions there. You can reach us over at ugh, that, you know, that website with the bird <laughs> that is now just a giant X. Yeah. I will um, I will never call it what it's what it now is. It's Twitter. It's just Twitter. It's just Twitter. You can still reach us there over at Twitter at, at the Lauren Ash and Academicality. Also, obviously, for Adashi Pod. Yep. Is it? Yep. Um, but please, guys, like, hit us out on the Patreon. Like, we're really excited and grateful for your support. And the big kind of push that we're doing for this year, as well as the new year, is going over at gamedesigndiscourse.substack.com. Um, please sign up for our newsletter and see and listen to all of our stuff there. I think that that will be one of the biggest places uh, for future things coming in the new year. So with that, thank you for a great December 2023, <laughs> I said 2024, and we will see you in the new year. Bye.